Our study in the book of Revelation now brings us to the highlight of everything. This is the highlight of the moment of the, since the creation of the world, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. There is more said in the Bible about the return of Jesus than any other topic except for faith. And that kind of makes sense because faith is the means by which we live. The just will live by faith. Faith is the means by which we are saved. But the second coming of Christ is so key in the scriptures and so incredibly glorious that it's hard for us to get a grasp on that. So I've asked Johnny to do something special for us. I, I called him up last night. Was it last night? Yeah. And said, <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, a little short notice on this. And I said, can you do this song for me at both campuses? And I'm not going to tell you what the song is, but you guys are going to get it almost immediately. So stand up with me. You guys are going to want to sing this to God as well as he begins to play this. Uh, but it has to do with the glorious return of Christ. Maybe it's different than what you thought it was, different than what you thought it was before, but it has to do with the glorious return of Christ. So let's sing that together. And eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He is lost, faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Everybody sing. Oh, 
Hallelujah. His truth is marching on. His truth is marching on. Oh, His truth is marching on. And thank you, Johnny. Appreciate that. Uh, so that, of course, was the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it, is, it was written in 1962, was the beginning of the Civil War, by Julia Ward Howell. She was an abolitionist. She, she fought to, against slavery. She wanted to set people free. Uh, the abolitionist movement was weighted heavily with Christians. It was Christians that were involved in the abolitionist movement, not only over in the UK, but also here in the United States. Christians very involved in seeing what was wrong with slavery. And the last line of the song was added later on, and it fit the Civil War a little better. The last line of the song says, as he died to make men holy, let us die to, uh, yeah, as he died to make men holy, let us die to set men free, which is the connection with the Civil War. And the song was used as an anthem to fight on, even though the cost was great. Our country went into a civil war. The cost was great over the loss of blood, but they continued to fight, and this became a song that they would sing. I found it interesting that every line of the song is about the return of Jesus Christ, the glorious return of Jesus, because you have Jesus coming back during the resurrection and the rapture, and you've got Jesus coming back in his glorious return when the skies part and Jesus Christ comes through in all of his glory. And he is on a white war horse and thousands of his saints are with him riding horses as well. And all the holy angels are with him as well. And he returns to this earth. And that's what we are covering today. From the beginning of, of, of mankind, when God created Adam and Eve, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth. It says in Genesis chapter 1, my notes got a little messed up here at the beginning, so I'm going to go from memory. It says in Genesis chapter 1 that God created Adam and Eve, told them to be fruitful and to multiply the earth, and he gave them dominion over every living creature, over all of the animals. Now, what does dominion mean? It means to rule. So he gave Adam and Eve the, the, the gift of having dominion over the earth. A king has dominion. And so Adam and Eve were to rule along with God, which is a pretty amazing thing, that God created us that we would rule with him. No wonder the New Testament says that we are kings and priests. We are priests because we don't need anybody to go between us and Jesus. And we are all priests, even you women, you're priests. And you are kings because you are royal. You have dominion and we are going to rule with him in the future. He's going to restore what he gave to Adam and Eve. Now, somewhere along the line, we lost the right for dominion. We, we gave it over to the evil one. Somehow he gained it from us. Most likely at the fall, some believe at the Tower of Babel. 
There's a couple of sentences in the, the section on the Tower of Babel where it talks about dividing land. And some believe that that's when Satan gained authority over the entire world. But you remember when Lucifer is tempting Jesus, that he takes him up on a high mountain and he shows him the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory and authority and says to Jesus, these are mine for they have been given to me and I give them to whoever I wish. And if you bow down and worship me, I will give them to you. Now, this is a temptation to bow down and worship Lucifer. Jesus responds with, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Now, it would not logically, when you think of this logically, because some people say, well, it, it, just because Satan said he has authority didn't mean he really has authority. That's the argument people have against it. But logically, think about it. What temptation would it be if he didn't have the authority? I'll give you these if you bow down and worship me. Jesus could just go, you don't have authority. You don't have dominion. But he didn't. He said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. So the Bible in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he is the God of this age. The Bible says in 1 Peter that all who don't know God are under the, the kingdom of darkness and that he is the power of darkness. Let me see what verses I do have here. Um, I don't think I have any of them along those lines. So I had four or five verses that, you know what? Hold on. I'm going to read them to you. I'm going to go over the verses. I got enough time to do this. Let's see if I got it here. There we go. All right. So now I'm going to preach from my phone. It's got Bible verses that are on it. All right, let me read you the Genesis 128 one. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth. That's complete and total dominion. In Luke 4, 5 and 7, this is the temptation of Jesus. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me. So at some point it got delivered to him and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me and Jesus goes on to tell him that you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, I told you that he's called the God of, of this age. In Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, it says, And he made him alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So if you are disobedient to God, then you are under the power of the prince of the power of the air. The, a prince is the highest spiritual being you could be. Michael is called the prince of Israel. There's the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We have been set free from the power of darkness. And one more, this is 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. It is clear that since Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, we have never had it. They gave it up, probably delivered it to him somehow. We don't know the details to how it was delivered, but it's been delivered over to him. And 
It is still is to this day, but in the book of Revelation, in chapter, around chapter five, I think it's, it is chapter five, that the, the, the throne and the one sitting on the throne has a scroll. The scroll is written on the inside and out, and it's got seven seals. We call that the title deed to the earth. Not because that's what it's called in the Bible and not that's because that's what they used for their day, but because when we own something, we get the title deed and it's the title deed of the earth. So the Lamb of God eventually opens up the seals. The first one is the white horse, which is the Antichrist. The second one is the black horse, which is red horse, which is war. The third one's the black horse, which is famine. The fourth horse is the pale horse, which is uh, death and the grave. Then you've got the fifth seal, the sixth seal, and then the seventh seal is open. I think it's in chapter 11, verse 5. And it says, when the seventh seal was open, an angel cries out with a loud voice, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and Christ. So the kingdom was transferred when that last seal was opened up to what we call the title deed of the earth. And now the kingdoms of the world during the tribulation period no longer belong to Satan. He no longer has authority, but God has them. Now, when you buy a house, you get it, you sign on it, and the house is yours. But they might live in it for a few months before you get out. It might be a little while before you take possession of it. And so Jesus got the title deed of the earth in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, but he doesn't come to move in to the earth that is his until Revelation chapter 19. That's where we are today. He's coming to move in, but he has to take care of some things. He's got to take care of the ungodly who are on the earth. And I hope I got this one in my notes, by the way. Um, let me see. I do. So he's got to take care of the ungodly that are on the earth. Jude 1, 14 and 15 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. When he comes back to this earth, his glorious return, he is going to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly. Now, let's count how many times the word ungodly is used here. To convict all who are ungodly, among them all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That sentence is full of ungodly. We need to introduce uh, Jude to a thesaurus so we can find something else besides ungodly. Or he is emphasizing it. He's saying he's coming back and he's bringing judgment on the ungodly. He's bringing judgment on, think about what's happened during the tribulation period. The Antichrist is being worshiped. You have to make a decision. I'm going to either worship him or I'm going to die. I'm, I, I get a mark where I can buy and sell or I'm not going to take the mark of the beast and I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to die. And it said in Revelation that the Antichrist is given power over the saints to kill them. So he's given power over them. He defeats them. They, now they overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, meaning that even though they kill him, they win. Even though the Antichrist kills you, they win because their sins were forgiven in the word of their testimony that they gave their lives to Christ. So the people that are around when Jesus returns are basically three groups of people. There are those who are ungodly. And remember, they're... 
The Antichrist kills a bunch of people. The uh, war kills a bunch of people. Famine kills a bunch of people. Death and, and, and uh, the, the grave follow after the pale horse. A third of the earth is destroyed here and a quarter of the earth is destroyed there. If there are 8 billion people on the earth at the beginning of the tribulation period, which is what there are right now on the earth, and if you're listening to this in six months, there may be 9 billion people, but 8 billion people on the earth. When we started Revelation, it was 7 billion something. Now it's 8 billion something. Uh, then it's estimated that there will be less than a billion people on the earth when Christ returns. Just trying to calculate a third of the earth, a quarter of the earth, and all the people that would die, that, that, that we would reduce the people on the earth down to about a tenth, a little bit over a tenth of what is on the earth today. The Bible says during this time, flesh will become rare. So most of them are ungodly. Then you've got Israel, who is being protected in the wilderness, and a remnant that is staying in Jerusalem. These, God's going to come back and they are going to be the ones who, who, who uh, populate the millennium. Jesus is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Our, our millennium study's coming, all right? And I know you got a lot of questions on the millennium because I do a Q&A a couple times a week on YouTube and Facebook and I get more questions about the millennium than anything else. Am I going to be able to have a cat in the millennium? Stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> There's so much more. So much more. We'll get back to the cat question here in a little while, by the way. Um, but, um, but the third group of people are Christians who committed their lives to Christ after the church was taken up in what is called the rapture. But I want to remind you, because everybody wants to argue about the rapture and everybody wants to have an opinion about the rapture. The rapture is a smaller part of a larger event called the resurrection. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we are not going to precede those who have died, fallen asleep, but that he is going to bring with him those who died in him and that they're going to meet him in the air. In other words, their bodies are going to be resurrected and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So with the resurrection, no matter when you think it is, if you think it's after the tribulation period, more power to you, no problem. I don't have any problem with you thinking that. If you don't believe in the tribulation period and you don't believe in the millennium, but you think it's at the end of the age that there's a resurrection, there's still going to be people alive because the Bible says that. He's coming for the living and the dead. So there will be a rapture because in that resurrection, no matter what you believe, all-millennialist, post-millennialist, non-millennialist, pre-millennialist, whatever your position is, there's going to be those alive who will be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye and caught up to be together with the Lord. That is the rapture of the church. And we believe it's pre-tribulation. We believe it happens before the tribulation period. And there are a lot of reasons that I believe it. And before too long, before we're out of the book of Revelation, I'm going to do a study entitled Defending the Pre-Tribulation Position. I'm not going to talk about what the rapture is. I'll give a brief definition of it in the beginning. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through all of the defenses for it. I just think it's absolutely necessary in the day that we're living. And I also want to tell you, if you are not pre-trib, it's okay. We love you anyway. We do really do. Calvary Chapel might be pre-trib, and that's true. Calvary Chapel's everywhere, okay? And I, I don't know of a Calvary Chapel that's not. There may be now. Since Pastor Chuck passed away, there's much more freedom for Calvary Chapels to believe different things. And maybe... But if you believe, if you're an all-millennialist and you're here with us today, welcome. We love you. You're, we're going to give you the right hand of fellowship. You're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will not make an issue over what you believe about eschatology. All right? 
Now let's get back to the glorious return of Jesus, which you believe as well. Why? It's in our creeds that Jesus is going to return to judge the quick and the dead. The quick is those who are alive, by the way, if you're wondering. The quick and the dead. So it's, it's in our creeds. All of our, the Apostles' Creed has in it, we believe in God the Father. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the return of Christ. That's the creeds of Christians that was founded very early in church history. The return of Christ is there. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's take a look at uh, verse 11 of chapter, make sure I got that, of chapter 19. It says, now I saw heaven open. So the sky does scroll back. I saw the heaven open. What a moment that will be when the sky opens and Jesus Christ comes in all of his glory. When he came the first time, he came as a man. He put aside his glory and joined us to be able to rescue us. But now the sky will open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. This is a war horse that he's riding. I was reminded today that a war horse, a, war, a, a horse that a knight would ride or a war horse in a cavalry is called a charger. Jesus comes back to the earth in a charger. If you guys know what kind of car I have, then you know why I emphasize that. <laughs> and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. It can be no one else. Jesus is faithful. Every, every promise he made you, he will carry out. Even when you are faithless, he will still carry out the promises that he made you because when you are faithless, he is faithful, the Bible says, and true. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. My word is truth and he is called true. If you're on a truth quest, if you genuinely are seeking God, you're going to find Jesus. That's where the, it's going to lead you. It's interesting. I, I saw this last week um, in Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque. They had Frank Turek and Lisa Childers at their service for Saturday, this last weekend. And um, uh, Skip asked Frank a question. And Frank said something I've heard him say before, which is, out of all you guys here who know people that are non-believers, you're trying to win to the Lord, do you think that they are seeking God honestly, that they are in a relentless pursuit of truth? And I'll do that here now. Out of all the people you know that want to need Christ, how many of you know people who are in a relentless quest for the truth when you're sharing Christ with them? Raise your hand. One, two, all right, three, three. Now, how many of you find that they are hostile, defensive, and don't want anything to do with it? Raise your hand. So you can't see it because if you're watching online, but it's the vast majority of us. It's like, I don't know. It's probably, probably I, I have no idea what the percentage is. It's 75, no, it's, 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 it's high. Um, and that is because people are rebellious against God. They don't want to know him. They don't want to walk with him. They're not seeking the truth. And Jesus is the truth. And why is that? Because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. But there is enough light in the scriptures. There's enough light in creation. There's enough light in the gospel to break through the blindness of the enemy and see people set free. It goes on to say, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, there are people who don't like that statement. That in righteousness... He judges and makes war. They don't like both of those. They don't like the fact that God judges. 
In fact, the favorite saying of the world today is, don't judge me, man. Right? Don't judge me. You're judging me. Don't judge me. The Bible says, judge rightly. Jesus said, judge yourself, lest you be judged. We should judge ourselves harsher than we judge anyone else. But, but we're not judging what we are as fruit inspectors. We're looking for the fruit in someone's life. And the Bible says, if anyone is in sin, let those of you who are spiritual in a spirit of gentleness go to such a one and restore them. So you have to judge sometimes. But you, you, you don't judge in the sense that you're setting over someone's life. I'm, I'm, I'm a pastor for many of you guys, most of you guys. Some of you may be visiting and I'm not your pastor. For many of you, I'm your pastor. But I'm not your judge. I don't judge you. I can't tell where your walk with Christ is. I hope it's close. But one day you'll stand before the judge who knows you inside and out and he'll judge you righteously for, for what's really going on inside of your heart. I don't want that. I'm the judge of no one. I should be a judge of myself is who I should be a judge of. I, I like to say I'm a judge of no one. I'm a boss of no one, but I am the boss of some. So I'm the judge of no one. And I'm, I'm not your boss unless you work for me. Then other than that, I'm not your boss. And he righteously makes war. Is it ever righteous to make war? You know, right now it's popular, kind of one of the politically correct things to tell soldiers that it's ungodly for them to be involved in, 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 in the army, in the armed forces, or police officers as well. Much of our nation is against police officers as well. But the Bible says in Revelation chapter, excuse me, in Romans chapter 13 and in 1 Peter, that they are God's servants sent by him for us to keep us safe. And when there are tyrants in the world, it is the armed forces that go and protect us. And when there is tyrants in our neighborhood, it is the police that come and protect us from the tyrants that are in our neighborhood or maybe even in our home or in, uh, in, our, in the world. And he will righteously make war. This is a war. His return is a war. And it's a righteous war when he comes against the ungodly. Now, verse 12 says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This isn't the first time we saw that. We saw it in Revelation chapter one. It means that he sees everything. His eyes are piercing. He sees, he looks on you. He knows everything that is in your heart. And the Bible says there is nothing hidden from him. God is never surprised. God never looks and goes, I didn't see that. I didn't know that was in him. We may say that of people we know, but God never does. And on his head were many crowns. Now, in Revelation chapter 5, when the first seal is opened up, a white horse rides out. And he has a crown and a bow. And people say, well, that's Christ. It's not. It's the Antichrist. In the beginning, the, the tribulation period is the time of the Antichrist. And he has a bow, but no arrows. That's interesting. He has a crown, but the crown is the wreath that you win in the games. It's a, fade, it's a crown that fades. It, it's a literal plant that they make into a crown and put on their heads. It's a wreath. That's the crown that he has. This crown, the word for many crowns, is the word for royal crowns that would be fitting for a king of kings and lord of lords to wear. And so when Jesus returns, he has... His eyes are like fire and he wears many crowns and he had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. And I love that. You, no matter how knowledgeable you are, maybe you've been through seminary, maybe you've been through Bible college, you don't know everything about Jesus because no one does. 
And when he returns, we will yet to have things to discover about him. And that's why we ought to be humble. That's why we ought to not think that we know everything because no one does. He has a name that no one knows. I like that. Earlier in the book of Revelation, it says to the overcomers that they receive a name that only he knows. So he knows about us and only he knows the name. There are things about me that only he knows. There are things about him, me, I don't even know. He has revealed over the years things about me that I didn't know. And I'm sure there's still things I need to have revealed. So there's has a name that no one knows except himself. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. The first time Jesus came, he was born in a small village named Bethlehem, foretold in the scriptures that his days were from everlasting. He was born of a humble woman, girl, really, teenager, by the name of Mary, who was married to Joseph, who was a carpenter. And when he was born, there was no place to put him, so they laid him in an inn, in a manger, in a, in a place where animals were kept, in a cave probably. They laid him there. He wasn't laid on silk sheets. He wasn't born in a castle. He came into this world, became a man in the most humble way. And the Bible says he humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Jesus said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The prosperity teachers try to teach that Jesus was really rich. I don't know how in the world they get that. I know the book of second opinions, chapter three, verse two. That's where it's at. Jesus humbled himself, but this time he doesn't come back humble. He comes back in all of his glory. And he comes back with a robe dipped in blood. It's not just red. It's dipped in blood. It's time for him to make things right completely and totally. He's been doing it during the tribulation period. This is just the completion of it. People have been killed by all kinds of catastrophes, 75-pound hailstones. And men cursed God because of the, the severeness of that particular plague. It says his name is called the Word of God, which brings us all the way back to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, there's nothing that was made that was made. In Colossians 1, it says in, a, in an old creed for the church, it is said that he made all things visible and invisible. Jesus is the Word of God. In the beginning, God said let there be light. And so you have God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit there in chapter one of the book of Genesis. And he is called the word of God. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. You all are going to have chargers too. Now look at this, the armies of heaven, that's us. I'm going to make that point in a moment. Some might say, well, it's the angels. Well, I'm going to make this point in a moment. It's us, okay? It's both actually, but it's us. This is talking about us. We are the armies of heaven. Soldier. That's what you are in the army of Christ. You are a soldier. You don't see yourself that way? Well, you are. You're called by him, empowered by him to do the work that God's called you to do. You are part of the army of God. And when he returns, you are going to be with him. Every true, genuine believer 
will be with him, except those few that may meet, remain on earth and there may be none, except the, the Jews that are following him who are going to populate the millennium. How do we know it's us? Clothed in fine linen. Where did we see that earlier in chapter 19? The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? White and clean. Do you know that's going to be said of you? Do you know that the Bible says that God has predestined you to be holy? Just let that sink in for a moment. God's predestined you to be without sin completely, totally. Now, that's a predestination I can get behind. That God will one day have me white and clean, following him on white horses. Now, one of the questions people ask a lot, are there animals in heaven? Well, there's horses here. Now, if you can ride a cat instead of a horse, maybe you can take this dead cat to heaven. I don't know. I don't know whether there will be cats and dogs in heaven. I, I like to think so, right? Some of you guys are very attached to animals. I've lost animals to coyotes. Unfortunately, several, several dogs to coyotes and bawled like a baby while I was burying them. So I understand the attachment that we have to our pets. I don't know whether they're going to be in heaven, though. I don't know. I just give you a big I don't know. But we're riding horses. Makes me wonder. Now, this is an opinion, right? This is just me thinking. Sometimes I spitball from the pulpit. I'm sorry about that. But it makes me wonder if that's not how we're going to get around throughout eternity. We're going to be cowboys in heaven. <laughs> we're going to have horses. We, get, we don't have wings. The Bible never says we have wings. But we have horses. My wife said, I always wanted a horse when I was a little girl. <laughs> well, we're going to be on horses with him. And listen, Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. If today, because it's unpopular to be a Christian, if today, because Christianity is called evil, and the Bible says this day is coming when people are going to call good evil and evil good, and that's happening in our day, things that are evil, they're calling good, and they're calling Christians evil. People will say, well, Christians have done more evil in this world than anyone else. Have you ever heard of Stalin? Have you ever heard of Hitler? They say, well, the Inquisition, the, the Catholic Church killed many people during the Inquisition. Somewhere around 600,000. Huge number. Awful. Horrible. Maybe only 300,000. We're not quite sure. How many did Stalin kill? Anybody remember? 40 million. Christianity is the worst. What about atheism? How about Stalin who was an atheist? So you get those things from atheists. The, the neo-atheists, you know, Dawkins and, and, and um, the other ones. Sam Harris, other ones. The, and, the, and it's atheism that has done the greatest evil that's out there. So we go to verse 15. We're on white horses. We're, we're pure and we're clean and we're riding with him. Oh, just let me make the case here um, that this is uh, believers. Colossians tells us that when he returns, he's going to be with us. It's Colossians 3, 4. If you're looking for the, the place that when he returns, we will be with him. This is one of the reasons I believe that we will be taken out before because we'll be with him. Now, if you're taken out in the middle of the tribulation period, you're going to be with him when he returns as well, Right. If you're at the end of the tribulation period, you're going to be with him as well. Why? Because if you believe that the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period, you believe you get to the end and then he, the resurrection happens. Those who are alive are taken up to meet the Lord in the air and then they come back down with him. So they are with him when he returns. So what happens is you're going to shoot up into heaven. If, if you're post-trib, you shoot up into heaven. You see the Lord. You're amazed at him. You grab your horse, your cowboy hat, jump on your horse and ride back down with him. <laughs> Nothing about a cowboy hat here, by the way. All right. So it doesn't matter again what you believe. We will be with him when he returns. 
Listen to what Jude 1, uh, 1, 14 and 15 says. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. What's he going to do? Judge the ungodly, the ungodly, the ungodly. To convict all who are ungodly. Among them are all the ungodly deeds. So he talks about them. But I wanted to go back. I've read this already. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. I told you my notes were messed up. With ten thousands of his saints. So we come back with him. Now in Matthew 25, 31, listen to what Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. He's coming to Jerusalem to sit on his throne of glory and all the angels will be with him. So it is the angels and it is the saints. We're all together. Remember earlier in the book of Revelation, one of the angels said to John, I am your brethren. We don't think of angels as being our brethren, but they are. They're our brothers. I'm your brethren. Don't bow down and worship me, he said. Now, verse 15, and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He has unleashed his terrible swift sword, right? And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He will destroy everyone, all of the ungodly. Now, some people inevitably will say, well, what about children? Well, I don't know what happens to children who are born during the tribulation period. I don't know if they are taken out before all of this deception destruction happens or if the children are there. But I do believe, and I've made this case before in a study that we entitled, Do Children Go to Heaven? I do believe that every child who is born before, the, before they know their right hand from the left, I'm being very biblical here, a child who doesn't know their right hand from the left is gonna be in heaven, every one of them. It's the age of accountability is the argument. And I go over the scriptures and people say, well, how can they go to, to heaven if they don't call on the name of Jesus? Well, Abraham went to heaven and never called on the name of Jesus. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham lived long before Jesus. And so it's accounted to them righteousness because God is a just God. For that reason, I believe that some of those that are mentally deficient and can't make a decision for Christ are, are as well in the presence of God. I also believe that people are responsible for the light that they're given and that there are people that never heard the name of Jesus that are saved by Jesus because it's accredited to them. No one is saved except the name of Jesus. But I believe when they respond positively to the light that they have and how many of those there are out there, I don't know. But when people ask, what about people who live, who've never heard the gospel? Well, they have light. They have creation. They have an inner word given to them by God, according to the book of Romans chapter one. And if they respond positively to that light, like, like Abraham responded positively to his light, then he, they too can have it accredited to them, even though they don't know Jesus. Now, this is very biblical and you can look the studies up. Best place to look them up is on YouTube. Go to YouTube and look up the age of accountability or do, do, do uh, I think I, I named it all children go to heaven, like a play on all dogs go to heaven, right? All children go to heaven. And um, the one for people who've never heard, I think if you just search, what about those who never heard? And, and, and you'll find those two studies and we break down all of the scriptures that I, that I don't have time to make today. But if there are children alive then, then they will, they will go to heaven. And you say, well, it's kind of a crazy thing because they're in the final destruction and then they're in heaven. But also there were children that were in Sodom and Gomorrah. There were children in the flood. They were under the wrath of God, but because they were children, they made it into heaven. 
So then in verse, the middle of verse 15, it says, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. That's a crazy statement. That was in the battle cry of the Republic as well, or the battle hymn of the Republic, that he treads the winepress. It's a picture of someone inside of a wine press stomping on the grapes. Verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's no mistake who this is. He is the I am, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come, gather together for the supper of the great God. Now, last week, we talked about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we talked about the fact that the Bible doesn't always put things in chronological order, that sometimes they are put next to each other to contrast one another. And we saw that with the, the city of Babylon and the woman who is called Babylon that rides the beast and the bride and the city of Jerusalem and the women, the, the, the harlot and the bride are both religious systems and the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem both rule over men. So it's put there. But also you are invited to a supper and one day there will be the marriage supper of the lamb. But for those who weren't at the marriage supper of the lamb, you become supper. And that's pretty brutal, isn't it? But, but they're called to a supper. This angel stands in the sun and cries out to all the birds that make themselves to Israel, to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, to the Kidron Valley. Because the valley, Battle of Armageddon started in the Jezreel Valley where the Mount Megiddo is. So don't ever say Valley of Armageddon, okay? The Valley of Armageddon is Jezreel. It's a Mount Megiddo and Jezreel Valley is by it. And that goes into the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which goes into the Valley of Kidron, which Jesus walked across when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane from the upper room. And there the battle will take place. And there in this battle, when Jesus returns, Jerusalem will be under siege and many will be killed. And it says the women are being ravished and, and the remnant of the Jews that are there are suffering when Jesus returns and unleashes on the ungodly in this battle of Armageddon, Mount Megiddo. And then the angel cries to come the, uh, in the middle of verse 17, together for the supper of our great God. This is God's supper for the birds. These are birds that feed on carrion. That you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw, a, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, the armies gathered together to make war against him. And they sat on the horse and against his army, who sat on the horse and against his army. So let me read that right. To make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So as Jesus returns and there's this battle over Jerusalem that, that we call Armageddon and it's got... 200 million that have come over the Euphrates River and the rest of the world that has come together to fight for the Antichrist and they turn and they fight against him who's coming on this horse. Now, the Antichrist has been fairly significant up to this point, right? Look what happens here. Then the beast was captured and with the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived the whole world and received the mark of the beast and to worship his image. That's kind of anticlimactic. And then the beast was captured. Who would ever write that as the end of a story? 
Who would ever have a movie that you come? I tell you, Steven Spielberg wouldn't do it. He'd have the beast and or the, 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 the Antichrist and, and somebody trying to catch him, maybe Michael. And the Antichrist would have certain power and turn it around and almost get him and look like he won. Only for Michael to move his hand and come back and grab the Antichrist. And that wouldn't still be over yet, right? It would still go on. But here, the beast was captured. Why? Because he's nothing against God. It said all along he was granted to do these things. And when he was granted to do these things, what had been granted had been taken away. And those who worship the beast now see he was captured with the false prophet who, who made people worship him. Then the middle of verse 20, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now we are going to have a study on hell before we're out of the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about the grave. We're going to talk about Gehenna. We're going to talk about Tartarus. We're going to talk about the Old Testament, Sheol. These are all translated grave in um, hell in the Bible. But hell, so hell in the Bible speaks of all of these things. And we're going to talk about what the Bible really says about hell. And we're going to see that there's some disagreement among Christians on what exactly is going on with hell. And we want to see what the scriptures are for what hell says. But these two are thrown alive into the lake of fire. That's different than Gehenna. That's different than Tartarus. That's different than Sheol. It's the lake of fire. And it says they were cast alive. They were cast alive in the lake of fire. I'm in all kinds of trouble with my notes. I just lost them. Hang on. Hi. How are you guys? All right, we're cast alive uh, into the burning uh, uh, fire, with the lake of fire with burning, uh, fire burning with brimstone. Then the middle of verse, what are we, still in 20? 21. And the rest were killed with the sword. So the rest of the people were killed with the sword, which proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, I don't know if that's what you thought the end of the return of Jesus was going to be all about, but it's really not the end. I didn't have time to read a lot of verses that I have or might not have in my notes that talk about him returning and establishing a kingdom from Jerusalem. He finishes restoring the nation of Israel. I don't know what you think of the Jewish people. I don't know what you think of Israel. I don't know what you think of the Hebrews. But I'll tell you what, God's made promises to them that he was going to rule and reign over them and they were going to rule and reign with him. And he will do that in Jerusalem. He has come to restore the nation of Israel to what it was and he will restore the tabernacle of David. Now, whether that means a temple or a tabernacle, I don't know, but that's what the Bible says. He comes now, he goes to Jerusalem and he sets on his throne of glory and he rules over the millennium, which we are going to talk about in a future study. I'm not sure how many weeks from now in the book of Revelation. Pray with me, would you? Father, we want to thank you for the time that we're able to spend here in your word today as we take a look at these things. We thank you for the word that, you're, that you gave us. We thank you that we learn about your return and that we know that now you are not in control of this world. Why doesn't the world make sense? Why is there so much pain and suffering? Because we're under the God of this age. We're under the power of darkness. And the world is being deceived because they've been blinded by him. And you will one day make things right. And we look forward to that day when the sky will open and you will come out on your white horse and a robe dipped in blood. And Lord, may we look at ourselves now 
because we know we will either stand with you or against you. We pray that we would be with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.